This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Hall and Oates. Very appropriate. I love it, Carol Masser. Uh, so this was big news, as we were talking about earlier. Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations there in New York, offering her resignation to the president, him accepting it. Uh, they had a nice moment uh, for the cameras there in the Oval Office. Yet it was a surprise. And so to help us make sense of it, Bill Ferries, national security team leader, our go-to guy on such matters, joining us on the phone from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. So, Mr. Ferries, what do we make of all this? Were you surprised as well? You know, we were. Uh, we know that quite a few people at the White House were surprised by this as, as well. Uh, whatever the reason, it's unusual timing, given the uh, kind of bitter fight we just saw over uh, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, and then the midterm elections just a month away. Normally, you know, you'd think you would, uh, you might wait till after the midterms, when you have a lame duck Congress and people are, you know, thinking about holiday parties before making this kind of a decision. So why did it happen then? Now, <laughs> <laughs> come on, you got the inside on this. You you know, we're we're all uh, we're all digging into that. Um, Haley had a you know quite a good reputation within this administration. She was uh, very effective for the president when it comes to things like uh, getting the UN Security Council to tighten sanctions on North Korea. She was very outspoken in support of uh, of Israel at the United Nations, and that won her actually praise from uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu earlier today. Um, you know, she she made clear that it's not she's not leaving because she wants to run for any office in 2020. But there's always been a lot of speculation about her political future swirling around. Yeah. Uh, she says she needs a break. She was, you know, governor of uh, South Carolina twice. She's had what, you know, anyone would admit is two very intense years uh, at the U.N. Um, so I don't think this is the last we're going to see of her. So a break before maybe she runs in four years? <laughs> Uh, possibly, yeah. It's uh, I, I, listen. She's always she's a very savvy uh, politician. She's uh, done very well in this administration, where a lot of people have, you know, found themselves uh, on the on the wrong side of of, uh, of the White House. That hasn't been her. So um, I I think she has some sort of a future in politics. I just don't know at this mm. point what it will be. Well, let's talk about that very point of, you know, sort of navigating her way through this White House, because she gave at least the public impression that she was willing to stand up to the president. Yet a lot of times people who actually stand up to the president don't fare so well. What was the secret to her success, as best you can tell from talking to folks down there, Bill? You know, everyone would like to really know, you know, what, how she managed that relationship. You know, she made it clear after the Charlottesville shootings last year that she had a personal conversation uh, with the president to talk about his response. Um, she has said that, um, you know, when she took the job, it was on, on the agreement with President Trump that she be able to speak out on issues of national importance. So um, she had that deal going into the job, and it's something that she did from time to time. She, uh, you know, when we saw uh, uh, women uh, accusing the president uh, of uh, sexual misconduct, we saw Nikki Haley, you know, on TV shows saying women need to be heard. We need to, you know, listen to what, the, what they have to say and, and, and weigh you know the evidence um 
which is you know not the the straight pro Trump line that I think a lot of the president's uh, uh, maybe better known defenders would have taken. So she she always seemed to have a degree of autonomy. It may have helped her in some ways to be away from the right. White House to be running this you know running this show at the UN where she proved herself to be pretty effective at carrying out the president's priorities. Because what's interesting, Bill, wasn't it very early on that she was at some press event uh, early in the Trump administration where he made some joke or something about like holding on to your job and if I don't like you, I'll get rid of you or something like, like he played with it. And somehow I feel like I don't know whether she was the adult, you know, in the administration or something, but she did seem to be able to kind of deal with it, move on and rise above it. That's that's right. And, you know, the, the the job was pretty politically fraught. I mean, this is not an administration that on its surface would look very favorably at the U.N. And, and you might even put someone that you consider to be not an insider in that job because maybe it's just not that important to you. I think Nikki Haley, um, partly because of international events like North Korea and the Iran deal and uh, and the focus on Israel, made it made it, you know, a, a politically significant uh, job. And she was also savvy in the sense that she brought uh, she brought the whole Security Council down to meet the president and tour the right. White House at one point. That was the kind of move that, you know, no one else had really done before, and it, it got, I think it got the president somewhat invested in her success at the U.N. Well, and not to read too much in, into the tea leaves here, but, you know, given what she said specifically about Jared Kushner, of course, the son-in-law <laughs> of the president, I believe mm-hmm. she called him an underappreciated genius or something of that uh, sort, uh, that presumably <laughs> might help her as well and is a very deft uh, political move in its own right, feels like. Of course. Anytime you're sitting next to the president and you're and you're heaping praise on his daughter and son-in-law, that's <laughs> never going to hurt you. But also look at the fact that they had this, you know, kind of send-off in the Oval Office. Yeah. It's very. I, I have a hard time thinking of any other top aide to the president who left on those kind of terms um, with, you know, with basically, basically an uh, Oval Office farewell. Now, she's going to be in the job a few more months. Um, it's going to be a busy few months with midterm elections and Iran sanctions and things like that. But, yeah, it I think it's a sign of her influence uh, with the president directly that she got that kind of departure. Amazing. Well, we'll be uh, interested to see what happens next. I mean, one bit of speculation around the water cooler uh, here in London from knowledgeable, you know, not knowledgeable watchers was if you see Lindsey Graham become attorney general, then there's an open Senate seat in South Carolina, her home state. So that sort of machination I find intriguing uh, as well. So in any case, Bill Ferries, national security team leader for Bloomberg, joining us from our bureau. Always good to talk to you. And to be fair, right, Jason? I mean, a, a couple of years into an administration, there are some people maybe who are worn out, who were part of the campaign process, and just, you know, <laughs> we see things change. However, we've had a lot of people leave very early on in this administration, so it does feel like it's a little bit different. But uh, maybe the changing of the guard for the next couple of years. We shall see. It definitely is an interesting move that has caught yeah. a lot of people's attention. Mother Nature definitely taking over. We've got the U.S. grappling with a second straight year of record hurricanes, floods, and wildfires. 
Even so, a small but growing number of hedge funds and pension plans and a few other investors kind of testing out some strategies to take advantage of those signs of climate change. It's a great story. It's featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine out this Friday, now online at Bloomberg.com. Chris Flavel, Chris Flavel, let me say that clearly, Bloomberg News climate policy reporter. He's our go-to guy when we want to talk about what's going on with climate change. Uh, great story. I feel like eye-opening and a reminder of what's going on in the world. And investors figuring out, I don't want to say take advantage of it, but just kind of being realistic that there's going to be an investment play here, Chris. Yeah, I think one of the best ways to get a handle on what's happening in climate change is, is find out what investors are doing. Uh, and I, I spent a few a few months talking to investors who focus on this. It's still a small category among investors, but I think it's growing. And the reason is the data is pretty clear that this is getting worse. Uh, and so for some people, that becomes an opportunity. Uh, I, talk, I spoke with investors looking at new investments in things like infrastructure, in agriculture, uh, in muni bonds, and things I hadn't thought of. Uh, and all of them share one premise, which is that it doesn't look like governments around the world will cut emissions fast enough to avoid some of these effects. So, Chris, one of the things that jumps out in a story like this is the line between essentially exploiting a problem and simply being opportunistic and maybe helping solve the problem. How much trepidation is there among the folks that you talk to that they are not grave dancing necessarily, but (laughs) it's certainly taking advantage of a, a pretty bleak situation? So everyone I talked to seemed to at least be somewhat aware that that these investment strategies might elicit that response. No one seemed to share that view. And, and they had, I think, a compelling argument for why one should not look at it that way. Their point was, if you want society to be able to cope with more storms, sea level rise, wildfires, etc., you're going to need a lot of spending. Uh, and that is going to mean mobilizing private capital. Uh, and sure, there's profit to be made, but that's true of almost anything. Uh, there's there's a counter to that, I suppose, which is, uh, you know, maybe uh, if we focus too much on dealing with the consequences of climate change, we'll take our eye off the other important issue, which is really trying to cut emissions. It's not clear to me that that's a valid point. I, I don't know if it's sort of either or that way. Uh, my view from talking to people is, they take this seriously, and they see their job as looking for opportunities, and they're not the ones causing the problem. And, you know, it's interesting to get that framing as well because, you know, this has been talked about for a long time. It does feel like there's a renewed sense of urgency even this week with some of the new uh, reports coming out, and and I do feel like – even in the last 48 hours, the sense of urgency has come up at least a little bit. Do you get that sense as well, or are people just going to keep whistling right past this? I, I certainly get the sense that the IPCC report that came out Sunday night, Monday morning, uh, is is more dire. And among people who pay attention to this stuff, there's an increased level of concern and urgency. It's not clear to me to what degree, if at all, that will penetrate the broader public consciousness. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's a, a tall pile of these reports that already exist, and it's not clear any of them have really shifted the trajectory in the U.S. at least on getting serious about cutting emissions. So, you, you know, you can always say maybe this one will do it. 
Uh, it's I, I'm not sure how much one would have to go on in that in that line. What's interesting and which kind of made me sit up a little bit and kind of freak out a little bit in your story, Chris, is you know you think about things like food production and you say you know as precipitation patterns change, oceans become more acidic, you know outdoor environments become less reliable. I mean we could essentially I'm not trying to say hey the world's coming to an end, but we may have to adapt and bring growing crops and food and ag inside. Agriculture is one of those great issues where everyone I talk to who's really deep in the weeds on climate change says, watch this space, because the pressure to continue to raise crop yields as population grows is going to be really hard, given the pressures associated with higher temperatures, with weird water levels and precipitation levels, uh, with rising CO2 levels. Uh, And so I think a great example of the kind of area where you need some degree of innovation. The question then is who pays for it? Governments tend to uh, be not not that keen on spending heavily, and certainly in the U.S. they've been cutting back on that. So I think another a point that they make is who will meet this need? And if you don't have private capital, it's hard to see uh, the solutions that are required coming yeah. up naturally on their own. Well, it's a great read, another great read from you. Christopher Flavel, he's our climate policy reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on this Tuesday from our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Check out his story. As I mentioned, uh, it's going to be in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. That's out Friday. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's see if we're going to be fine in 2019. Let's get a bigger, broader picture uh, on the markets with J.J. Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade. They've got uh, over a trillion, $1.1 trillion in assets under management. Uh, joining us on the phone uh, from Chicago. You know, J.J., uh, I don't know. I guess if we could all predict what's going to happen in 2019, 2020, um, I know I'd certainly be living on a beach uh, very you know, remotely with nobody around me. <laughs> um, what kind of visibility do you really have? Jason, you could be there, too. Okay? You can bring oh, your family, you. and I'll bring my family. Thank you. Um, but, you know, what kind of visibility do you really feel like you have in this market environment? Well, I, I think there's just so many, to your point, uh, there's always unknowns, but they seem to be bigger unknowns as we head into the fourth quarter. I think, uh, and, and by that I mean, you know, where tariffs will end, et cetera. But I think the the, the, the shorter term, we're going to get some answers, and I'm really anxious for this Friday as we start to get the banks coming out and talking about their earnings. And and I think that this is a season more than any other where I really want to hear what the CEOs have to say. And the reason I say that is if, if we go back to last quarter in the earnings calls, the CEOs primarily talked about strength of dollar and energy prices going higher as their main fears. They didn't really mention tariffs too much. So I'm very interested to hear outside what we would suspect is the normal suspects being automakers, you know, the Boeings, the Caterpillars of the world. They did mention it last quarter. I would expect them to mention it again. But do we start to see this become more widespread? If we don't, I think it's a really good sign for the market. If we do, then I think that's going to bring up a lot more questions as we head into year end. Well, and it would be interesting if they didn't, in part because the IMF is coming out and saying this is an issue. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, it, it would be fascinating if companies really are uh, able to navigate this. I got to ask you about tech because we've been watching this ride of technology stocks that, you know, just a couple of the tech stocks have really accounted for a lot of the gain in the NASDAQ uh, so far this year. But it hasn't been a, a super happy few months for some of the tech giants, especially when you start to unpack uh, the FANG stocks as recently as this week with uh, Google Alphabet. So what do you make of that? Well, I, I actually would say that 
I'm kind of impressed in one sense, and that is I look at a, you know, a, a favorite. You, you talk about the, the FANG stocks, and I agree, Jason, they've been uh, a favorite among our clients as well as the market overall. But then I look at a Netflix, and I see a stock that's down almost you know, 20% yeah. since early June, or late June, actually. And I'm like, yet the market still continues to hang in there. We, we, we still set new highs. It's, now we're off them, obviously, from a couple of weeks ago. But the fact is, I think it really feels worse than it actually is because we're off these new highs. There's so much bad news out there. The one note of caution I will strike now as compared to something we've seen recently is that the VIX has sort of hung in there at this 15 level over the last few days. We'll see if that continues. And to your point, you know, can the NASDAQ show a positive day after four negative days? But actually, when I look at how some of the uh, favorites, if you will, uh, Netflix, uh, Facebook, have gotten beaten up recently, and the fact that the market's still hanging in there pretty well, yeah. uh, I, I almost see it as a bullish sign. Yeah, because when you say so much bad news out there, you're saying specifically for a few of these big tech names, or are you saying more broadly? Oh, well... <clears throat> More broadly, but over the last month and a half, tech, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of positive stories. Uh, you know, if you think about data breaches or some of the things with Facebook, et cetera, it just seems like the stories keep piling up in a little bit of a negative way, although there are a lot of good things happening. You know, you think about Intel saying, hey, we can meet some of the demand that's out there, et cetera. It feels like the, the narrative around the technology stocks was an all-positive to now it's, uh, okay, there might be some things under the surface that uh, we weren't talking about before or more of a negative slant even to some of the, the, the stories recently. JJ, I also want to get your take on real estate because, you know, both on the residential and the commercial side, it's always something that people worry about as a bit of a leading indicator. It feels like what are you seeing on both the publicly traded side of that as well as the broader kind of economic indicators that would either give you enthusiasm or pause here? Well, I, I think you have to pause a little bit. And the reason I'll say that, you know, I'll use a stock like Toll Brothers kind of going along very nicely. And then, you know, since mid-September, uh, a stock that's down almost 20 percent, et cetera. And, and I think you're seeing that a, a little bit across the board for many of these home builders, the, you know, LNR, whoever it may be. And so the one thing I will say there is there, there's, there's two things. First of all, uh, you know, in reality, we have interest rate hikes. Uh, that, that always scares people. The amount they may be paying in a difference on their mortgage probably isn't that, in, in real terms, isn't that big a difference. But the thought of interest rates being higher does scare people. And the other thing, as we know from both some uh, things published on Bloomberg.com and from the journal, and I know anecdotally from family in the business, is it's tough to get help right now. And with new homes particularly, there was there's actually a demand that supply can't keep up with because so many people who were talented left that industry yeah. in the mid-2000s. They're actually having trouble attracting people that they can afford to have. So so it's really kind of a delicate balance that the home builders are doing right now hey, also. JJ, just got about uh, 30 seconds here. On, on the list of things to worry about when you get together with your team, I mean, do you say, hey, guys, you know, what is the, th the thing we might be missing here in this environment? 
Uh, I think that there is sometimes a psychological element of the market is underrated. And, you know, the, the last question about home builders is really right there. Is there this is sort of a fear that people want to slow down because rates are higher? And also with tariffs, if clothing prices, et cetera, go higher, does the, the threat of inflation, it, it, does it start to become a little bit of a bad cycle? So that's the one thing that I think is under the service, surface that, you know, I'm not – staying up at nights about yet but certainly want to keep a pulse on and that is when because we know from past history when inflation starts it happens exponentially fast well the good news for you is joining us from chicago the bears are in first place in the afc north so you got to feel good about that right we're happy again (laughs) (laughs) you had to pause there for a second i love it all right J.J. Kennehan, Chief Market Strategist for TD Ameritrade, overseeing $1.1 trillion, joining us from Chicago. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Hey, I just met you. This is crazy. But here's my number. So call me maybe. Are you really bopping to this? I am bopping. Wow. And you're bopping and Shira's bopping. So I can see it all happening right in front of me. All right, let's talk a little bit about a really cool story because she says, the she being Shira Overday, our Bloomberg Opinion Technology columnist, says that the era of half-baked internet consent cannot continue. Let's get into her column. Uh, She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Uh, Great to have you here with Jason. We love talking to you. Tell us a little bit about this column, and it kind of plays off of Google here. Yeah, so the big story yesterday, the the data security breach of, of this week. Oops, we forgot to tell you. <laughs> right, was from Google, where they apparently discovered this flaw in Google+, Plus, which is a not very popular social network that Google rolled out a number of years ago to try to compete with Facebook. The issue with Google+, Plus is that a lot of people, myself included, created profiles because... Um, it was a factor in search results. You know, you kind of ranked higher in search results if you had a Google Plus profile. So lots of people like me set them up. And Google discovered that for at least a couple of years or more, there was this flaw that allowed, uh, potentially allowed outside developers who had hooked their software into Google Plus to access information that friends of friends had marked as private. So this was you know, a mistake on Google's part, a flaw in how it designed Google+. Plus. Is it ever a mistake, Shira? I think, yes, I think it was legitimately a mistake. Okay. The thing that Google did wrong, however, is that they discovered this flaw and then decided, you know, we don't know that anyone was really affected by it. And also there's this whole Facebook scandal over a very similar phenomenon where friends of friends information got... Uh, uh, got accidentally uh, handed over we'll to an outside developer. We're just not going to tell people about this, which was, in, I'm sure, it, I assume in hindsight, Google realizes that was incredibly dumb of them. Uh, and so, e- e- again, to me, the point of both fa- Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal and this Google Plus issue and some other um, uh, developments that people have reported this year involving Facebook and Apple and Google, it all goes to show you that we're not really giving informed consent on the internet about where our personal information goes. So even if I tell Facebook, I don't want this information to go outside of Facebook's walls, you know, Facebook makes arrangements with, um, you know, smartphone companies and all these other companies whose uh, technology interacts with Facebook. And we don't really give our truly informed consent about what those partner companies can do with our data. It also feels like this one may continue to blow back on Google and Alphabet 
And I'm thinking back to the Bloomberg Business Week story that we did just a few weeks ago about the empty chair at Congress that, Hmm. you know, Sheryl Sandberg shows up, Jack Dorsey shows up, and basically it's a bit of a nothing burger for them. They say what they're (laughs) supposed to say, they'd leave, and yet the story that really continued was neither the CEO of Google nor the CEO of Alphabet accepted an invitation to attend. And so they're already in the crosshairs of regulators. This can't help that. It definitely cannot. And I think you saw already that there were regulators, global regulators, who were asking Google questions, hard questions, to explain themselves about this Google Plus um, security flaw. And I've been honestly surprised that Google, which is a company that has a lot of experience dealing with public policy issues, both in Europe and in the United States. Remember, it narrowly avoided uh, kind of an antitrust um, uh, case with the FTC after a long investigation. The FTC decided not to move forward a number of years ago. So this is an experienced company in dealing with public policy issues, and yet it still seems kind of clueless on these issues of policy uh, to the extent that surprises me. Sure, what I love in your story is you say, well, you know, it kind of comes down to that the public has no control, right? So we, we kind of sign these agreements uh I'll be the first one out there. I don't read those. In, I mean, how could anybody realistically not. read those no, things? No, no one does. Right? And so, but ultimately, it's our information. You're getting an awful lot of value out of our information and using it in multiple ways. And I have no control over what you do with it and who you share it with. Yeah, that's right. And I and, and to me, that, I mean, I think this is just, this is an annoying, destructive part of the internet economy that you and I might again, have a vague understanding that, okay, I'm using Google Maps. That means I'm handing over Google a lot of information about what I do and where I go. Right. Maybe I'm not 100% um, cool with that, but Google's providing me a useful service. The issue is just that there's other steps in the chain where the information may kind of go out to other partner companies. And, and that's where you really lose control and we're relying on these companies to make smart agreements with partners, and I think those companies have proven that they are not worthy of that trust. So, sure, 20 seconds. Does this actually change any consumer's behavior? When will a consumer have had enough? You know, I I think consumer behavior is changing. Interesting. Um, And what we've seen at Facebook, for example, it's hard to prove for certain, but in North America, usage of daily usage of Facebook has flatlined, and I have to think that Facebook's many scandals are playing a role in that. And um, you're seeing trust erode for places like Google as well. And you've got Europe and other places around the world pushing back. And I've got to feel like that that is ultimately going to have some kind of impact. Agreed. Good stuff as always. Shira Ovaday. She is technology columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in our interactive broker studio. Check her out on Twitter at Shira Ovaday. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
So long in the tooth, yes, both the bull market and the current economic recovery in the U.S. Longest since, our next guest says, since 1890. So is that alone reason to say the party is over? Let's get to the drive to the close. Hugh Johnson with us, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors, with us on the phone from Albany, New York. Uh, Hugh, great to have you here with us. Uh, You and I have been talking for a long time, and we have definitely see a lot of uh, different market cycles. We've seen the financial crisis. We've seen the tech bubble and burst. Um, When you look at where we are in this market environment, how long the market economy has gone on, the market cycle, and how long just the economic run-up has gone on, um, I don't know. How does it feel to you? Does it remind you of any other era uh, or cycle that we've been in before? No, the, no, Carol, it, it's certainly reminiscent. I mean, all the cycles, to some extent, are, are alike. But it, it, this one is, of course, so long. We're at the 115-month mark. The average is around 57 months. This is the longest uh, bull market that we've seen uh, since 1890. So that alone makes me – that's very nerve-wracking. It makes you very concerned, nervous, shall we say. So it's the time to be – I say it's the time to be very, very vigilant, which really means – being on our toes looking for those kinds of things that signal the end of the current cycle, the end of the bull market, the start of a bear market that would be accompanied by a recession. So this is a very nerve-wracking time, and I think from that reason, or you know, that point of view, it's kind of different. Hugh, you were nice enough to share some of your thoughts with us before uh, we brought you on the air. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was you broke down bull market and bear market sectors. And you said two bull market sectors, tech, consumer cyclicals, and one bear market sector, healthcare, have outperformed the S&P. And on the other side, two bull market sectors and three bear market sectors, consumer non-cyclicals, telecommunications, utilities, have underperformed the S&P. I sound like Dave Wilson here. Like, (laughs) What do you make of it? So up is down, down is up. You can't sort of make a lot of sense of it. So where do you put money, especially from a sector perspective? Yeah, you you have to look at everything. You have to look at sectors, capitalization, performance, the performance of the bond markets. And when you look at everything, you get, quite frankly, you'd wish it was a nice, simple, bullish picture where you saw all the kind of bull market or economically sensitive sectors at the top of the performance ladder and the bear market or safe sectors at the bottom of the ladder. But it's just not that simple right now. It's a very mixed picture. You see that in the overall performance of the market. You know, you see the performance of the market today or the last few days, it's very mixed. And you see that in sector performance. You see that capitalization performance. You see it across the board, which really means that um, that's not what you want to see at this point in the cycle makes you even more nervous about the end of the cycle, but it really means that investors are having a a very difficult time, like we all are, right now deciding whether this cycle's got further to go or it doesn't have further to go. And the spike up in interest rates that we've seen in the last week certainly puts them very much on edge, makes them ask the question, is this now the time for the end of this cycle? And that's, that's what you see. You see that in very mixed results across the board, sectors, capitalization, you name it. Well, you know, and not that I would say, I guess some folks would say that I'm not sure that the IMF always gets it right when it comes to its forecast. Mm. But having said that, if you look at, you know, some of the forecasts, 
the U.S. continues to somewhat be a bright spot out there. Uh, and I do wonder, you know, just when we say, I don't know, go back a couple of years, Hugh, and I feel like we were saying, okay, that's it for the U.S. market, time to look elsewhere. You know, and then something else came up, whether it's emerging markets or European concerns or Brexit, you know, and here we are back in the U.S. market. And uh, I'm not trying to be a cheerleader for U.S. stocks, not at all, but I do wonder how the U.S. stacks up with the rest of the world. Oh, it's you, you, Carol, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, this has been really lopsided. It's been the U.S. all the way. The U.S. economy is performing extraordinarily well, especially compared to other parts of the world. Uh, it's also the case that you see the growth rate of earnings in the U.S. of U.S. companies has been extraordinary compared to those in other parts of the world. And then, of course, what you would reasonably expect is that the S&P 500 or whatever index you want to use uh, U.S. stocks are just outperforming other parts of the world. Now, this is really good news. Obviously, it makes us all happy because we see U.S. stocks doing well. But it's also attracted a lot of capital to the U.S. markets, both the debt markets as well as the equity markets. Uh, it's been among the things that have, have attracted a lot of capital. And that's really helped us because, you know, there's a little dark, dark cloud in the U.S., and that's that Domestic money conditions, liquidity conditions, are not all what they should be. There's really not enough money to really drive both the economy and the markets. So we benefit from our markets being good largely because of the influx of international capital. That's offset the shortfall in, in domestic money. So this is, this is really good news, and, and I don't see any end to that at, at least anytime soon. And you see, of course, in the, in the, in the strength of the dollar. Hugh Johnson is chairman and chief investment officer up at Hugh Johnson Advisors in Albany, New York. Always great to get your perspective. Some nice uh, yeah. history there. So, Carol, got to talk a little bit about Starbucks because I that, knew you wanted to go there. Yeah, I, it just names make news. I learned that from Matt Winkler a long time ago. Bill Ackman, of course, the noted activist investor taking a stake in the coffee retailer worth around $900 million. A Starbucks shares were up as much as 5.6%. I'm checking them now to see where they are. They're up 2.2%. They were up as much as 5.6%. It's interesting. Um, a listener to our program, a uh, frequent listener, uh, was at that uh, Grant's conference and, uh, said, a- and messaged me before and said, you know, Ackman did make a sound case for Starbucks. So kind of interesting, I guess, you know, saw it. Um, hey, just quickly, too, a headline crossing. Uh, President Trump saying, I think we don't have to go as fast on raids. Uh, sorry that that feels so random, but I did want to get it out uh, as it crossed on the Bloomberg terminal. President Trump, not talking Starbucks, but once again commenting on rate policy by the Federal Reserve, Jason. Jay Powell slowly shaking his head somewhere <laughs> in Washington right now. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.